Welcome to Hockey Prospect Radio. Your voice for prospect news and analysis on Sirius XM NHL Network Radio. Now, here's hosts Shane Malloy and Brad Allen. Welcome to Hockey Prospect Radio, week nine of our show. We're going to start this week uh, with the New Jersey Devils prospects. We're happy to bring in Megan Duggan, Director of Player Development for the New Jersey Devils. Megan, thanks for coming on the show again. We always appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Shane. Lucky uh, to be here and, and happy to happy to chat with you guys today. Well, let's uh, chat about some of the prospects we haven't had an opportunity to discuss because things were a little bit crazy at the draft and just want to want to uh, circle back and ask you about Simon Nemich. And it's an, he's an interesting prospect to look at in terms of his development, because, you know, not very often do you see a player that's 18 years of age. That's already played two years. Pro has played in two world championships, has played in the Olympics, has played at the world juniors, had Ivan Holenka, you know, you sort, you almost, you, when you look at that from that perspective, you forget that he's 18 years of age, and now he's in the American Hockey League as an 18-year-old. And although he's had all these things that you know I've mentioned, you know, I think sometimes we forget that he's 18, and there's a lot of maturity and development that still has to happen on off the ice that helps him, you know, acclimatize on the ice because sometimes we we look at them as what they can do in the ice and we assume that everything is great off the ice. And that's a lot to put on an 18 year old kid's plate. Um, what are your thoughts on how he's developed and handled all that a focus and attention on him and, you know, the pressure of coming over to the American hockey league as an 18 year old. Yeah. Very well put by you. I mean, we should hire you on our staff, like uh, with that in- insight there, but no, very, very well put. Um, you know, Simon's a, a really unique player, really special player for our organization. Obviously, someone we're incredibly excited about. Um, you know, we took him at second overall for for a reason. Um, and he has, he has, you know, so much to his game that we're excited about. Um, and it's an incredibly unique situation to have an 18-year-old kid um, in Utica this year under our, you know, fantastic leadership, obviously, of Kevin Deneen there as our head coach and, you know, Dan McKinnon as our GM of our um, AHL team. So, He's in, he's in a great spot, I think, from a development perspective. We're really excited to have him under our nose there and be able to work work on him um, and work on his game. So it's been a decent start for Simon in his kind of first taste of pro hockey in North America. Obviously, um, he has a lot of experience playing against men. And uh, as you mentioned, over in Slovakia with the national team, um, you know, in the league he was in last year. And um, But, uh, yeah, he's, he's adjusting well. Um, I think he, he had a great – um, you know, great couple of weeks with us in, in New Jersey as well, you know, early in the season at rookie camp and our main training camp and um, where he was able to get a taste there of what, um, you know, what the big club will look like too, you know, once he, once he makes his way there, but we're excited to have him in Utica um, to work on things in his game. And like you said, let him mature. Um, you know, the American hockey league is a tough league to play in for an 18 year old. And, uh, and he's doing a great job jumping in um, as a mainstay in, in our lineup there. And, um, like I said, just working on his game under some great leadership we have there. Megan, has he had a seamless transition physically since the Slovakian League does simulate the North American style of game a little more than some of the other European leagues? 
Um, I don't think any transition is, is seamless, honestly, for anyone. Um, I think especially with someone like him, you know, as you mentioned, Shane, like he's adjusting in a lot of different ways, both on and off the ice. Um, you know, he's still working on his English, those types of things. And so um, I think he's, he's certainly, you know, holding his own and impacting the game in a lot of ways. Um, but, you know, he's still adjusting to what does the training environment look like? How can I grow and become bigger and uh, be a more physical presence out there? And, um, you know, again, as an 18 year old kid. So, like I said, we're working on him with a working on a lot of different things with him and excited to, to see his game kind of make strides every single week. Megan, we have Dr. Kevin Willis on our show on a regular basis talking about the mental side of the game. And because he's 18, have and, and although he, you know, and of course he's still learning English, so there's obviously some communication um, challenges in that as well. Is have you looked at him about potentially, you know, focusing his habit on his habits and making his world smaller so that he doesn't have as much to deal with, like particularly off the ice, sort of like simplifying some things for and like almost like making like having to take care of him in terms of making sure groceries and nutrition and, and you know making sure his bills are paid and like you know yeah. although you, you know we forget like he's still 18 and you know he has he's focused on so many other things but just to make his world a little bit smaller to so that he can he only has to focus on a couple things yeah absolutely and that's where you know that's where i'm 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 uh super happy we have a great great team in place um you know in in new jersey and in utica and with our development staff to really support these players um, and help them in those aspects, right? We want to support every aspect of their life as a player, whether it's on the ice, off the ice, you know, mentally, physically, cognitively, anything that they need to do um, to be able to focus on the ice. You know, Simon is, he's an unbelievably talented player, um, natural hockey sense, great feel for the game. Um, and we want him to to focus on those things. We want him to grow in his, you know, his defending and his his ability to impact the game offensively. And so to be able to take some of those things off of his plate, as you mentioned, Shane, you know, um, help him get set up with housing and, um, you know, help him adjust culturally to the North American life. Um, that's a that's a huge part of of our job. So he doesn't have to worry about the, those things, and he can worry about what we're asking him to do on the ice. I'd like to ask you about Seamus Casey and. You know, we talked about him quite a bit on our show leading up into the draft, and we were curious to, you know, see who is going to take him. You know, although he's exceptionally talented, and yes, smaller players are finding their way into the NHL on a more regular basis, defensemen that are 5'10 and smaller, there's only 10 of them in the NHL. Mm-hmm. So there is an uphill battle for him. And thoughts on him as a player and then helping him develop understanding that you know, he's going to be a bit of a unicorn when if he makes the NHL and then giving him people to mentor and people to like to watch and go, OK, here's a player that has similar skills to you, similar size. This is how they defend. This is how they handle these situations to so that he becomes more comfortable in understanding and taking those lessons. And then they become almost autotelic where he understands, OK, this is what I need to do in these situations as he moves forward. Because I find those types of players, along with power forwards, need a little bit more guidance because of the, you know the, I guess so because how specialized they have to be in certain situations. Yeah, I mean Seamus, uh, he's a player we're really excited about. I have to be honest, he's um, you know we're excited about all, all of our players, but he's he started off his college career really really on the right foot by stringing together um, some consistently good performances where he's really using, you know, his high end puck skills and his skating to drive offense at Michigan, which we know 
you know, is a, is a good team, right? And in, um, you know, on a team and in games with lots of talent, he's, he's a type of player that he's standing out a lot and making high quality plays. So we're excited about him, even, you know, as you mentioned at his size, like he, he has a unique way of impacting the game um, as a defenseman uh, at that, at that height, you know, he's a, has a very mature defensive game. He's very dynamic offensively um, and just his poise and composure and, and mobility um, you know, he, he pushes the pace of, of each game. And so, um, you know, his, him being undersized is not something really that you notice because he's, he's so impactful. So very unique player, um, lots of potential. I think he's exciting to watch the way he weaves himself up and down the ice. And, um, and so we're, we're excited about having a prospect like him in, in our pool. Megan, you mentioned the, the offensive driving rates going up. I feel like in his draft season, when he was with the program, there was there was uh, a lot of moments where you'd say, oh, there's so much potential here. But he rarely got an opportunity to really integrate it and bring it together until the end of the season there at the U18s. Do you feel he's he's gone from the U18s into college and all that offensive skill is starting to really flourish and the consistency rates are going up for him? Yeah, absolutely. I think he's... Um... Like I said, he does have a mature defensive game, but I think this year at Michigan so far, you know, he's he's been dynamic offensively. He's really using his skill and vision and sense and certainly his his skating um to move the puck up the ice and and just factor in on on, you know, high quality scoring chances. Um so, you know, he's got a good offensive rush game. He makes plays after he enters the ozone. Um and again, his his agility and his edges and his skating are great. So I'm happy for him. You know, he's in a great situation there in Michigan. Um, obviously has, you know, another one of our prospects, a couple of our prospects there, but another highly talented, um, you know, puck moving defenseman to, to look up to and work with in Luke. So um, we're, we're really excited about where he's at. And, um, you know, he's going to have continue to have great mentorship in our development staff with someone like Eric Weinrich, who's, um, you know, plays close attention to all of our, our defensemen. And um, so we're excited about, about Seamus for sure. When you're working with Seamus in terms of defending down low, because once he begins to move into the American Hockey League, talent pool compresses their big, strong men of mm -hmm. just defending down low. Once the team gets pinned in there and how, how he can use his skill sets to defend in a different way, because he just doesn't quite have the height, the range um, sure. to defend that way. So he's got to defend in a different way, but can be equally effective. I look at a guy like, you know, Spurgeon in Minnesota as an example of how he can defend and defend effectively at that size. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that's something, you know, we'll continue to work with on with all of our young defensemen, right. Defending at the pro level, um, especially in the national hockey league, it's, it's no easy task. So it's going to be crucial for someone like Seamus, you know, to keep working on obviously fine tuning his defensive game, um, his overall strength, you know, learning to use his speed and mobility to, to gain body position and kill plays and, um, and, and those types of things, you know, containing and, and defending when he's tired. And um, I think just continuing to have proper body positioning, you know, and using his, um, you know, his skating and his mobility and uh, keep adding to his strength is it's going to be huge for him. So, like I said, he's in a great spot in Michigan to con continue to keep working on those things. Um, and as a young player, you know, he's only going to continue to get bigger and stronger, hopefully physically. Um, and uh, that'll really be to his advantage as well. We're going to take a short break on Hockey Prospect Radio. We'll continue to talk about the Devil's Prospects right after these important messages. You're listening to Hockey Prospect Radio on Sirius XM NHL Network Radio. Here's Shane Malloy and Brad Allen. 
We are back in Powered by Instat Hockey, offering the largest data and video library of players, teams, and leagues worldwide. We're talking about the New Jersey Devils prospects with their director of player development, Megan Duggan. Megan, I want to ask you about Luke Hughes, and I know you did mention him in the previous segment. Thoughts on his continued development, uh, you know, jumping in from the program and then having a, I think, a fantastic freshman season. Not very mm-hmm. often do you see a freshman, and it's not all about points, but that level of production for a defenseman is rare, uh, particularly in the conference he plays in. That's a pretty tough conference to produce points in. Uh, thoughts how he's continued sort of transition and the experience that he had at the World Juniors and the World Championships, how that impacted him coming into this year. And then then on top of that, getting a letter um, and get having a letter in Michigan. I know it matters in a lot of universities, but it really matters at Michigan. And people look to you and have high expectations when you're wearing a letter there. Yeah, for sure. I mean, excited for Luke with with where his game, um, you know, is going, continues to go. Obviously, I agree with you, Shane. Fantastic year last year. We couldn't have been um, happier. I think, you know, obviously, you know, high end production from a player like him. But I think just, you know, his his um, consistent ability last year to just maintain a high level of impact game after game after game after game. Um, was what we we really loved. He was very consistent, um, you know, in his reports last year and, and how he played. So, um, you know, big season for him this year. Um, another another good year really starting up for him. I think what we've seen from him so far, you know, he's just stronger and more confident overall. You know, had a great had a great summer, um, obviously with a couple national team stints, as you mentioned. Um, but he just, you know, he looks older, more physical. He's competing harder, finishing checks. He just looks like he's taken a step in his in his overall maturity, which is exciting. You know, he's a player that's going to stick out to any anyone that goes and watches the game. I mean, his agility and skating and mobility and range, it's it just, it's elite. Um, and it continues to, to continues to get better um, each year. So I think the national team experience that he had, um, you know, in speaking with him after that just really helped him you know, open his eyes to just uh, pro habits that he needs to continue to focus in on. You know, he had some really good mentors over there and guys he sat next to in the locker room when he was um, at the world championships. And I think that was one of his, his key takeaways, which, which I love to hear. Um, and, uh, and yeah, going into this season, wearing an A in Michigan, I think he takes a lot of pride in that, you know, it's uh, good for his developing leadership and um, you know, accountability and, and those types of things. So I'm happy for him. Obviously, he's a very important prospect for us, um, and we're excited to keep watching his game, you know, trend forward. When discussing the the pro habits, are you mostly referring to the idea of being able to contain himself structurally so that even when he's transitioning, becoming the fourth forward, uh, he can still put himself in positions where he can uh, make himself defensively responsible? I guess this goes into more risk mitigation. Do you feel that he's playing – intelligent hockey where he's not uh, over overtly risking his position to create his offense. Yeah, I think that, you know, managing risk, managing the game, um, you know, understanding, um, you know, all aspects certainly of, of, you know, being a pro on ice, but also off ice, right? How do you take care of yourself? How do you prepare? How do you show up every day? Um, you know, when you're playing an 82 game season, like, what does it look, what does that look like for these guys mentally and physically? And um, you know, in order to maintain, consistency at that level and so I think anytime we can take our young players whether it's Luke or you know Seamus we were just talking about anytime we can take these young players and you know have them be around or expose them or let them have opportunities to some older uh, veteran players or 
you know, um, other, other pros, whether it was Luke at the world championships, um, that's a great opportunity for them. And, you know, to, to, I guess, steal things from their toolbox and be able to apply that back to their game. Um, it's great. And we're always encouraging that with our guys. He has great confidence in his abilities. And as you know, Brad had mentioned, will and has on the, in the past on occasion, will almost kind of like go a little road. And because he can get away with it with his skating and obviously with the help of both of his parents um, who, you know, uh, have great expertise in, in player development. And he has got away with it in the past. Is it about when you have these conversations with him is like, okay, Luke, you can, you know, we don't want to like take this out of your game. However, you know, when the talent pool compresses, you know, the NHL, the NHL, you know, AHL to the NHL, there are going to be times when you're not going to be able to get away with this. And, you know, the, you're going to go back to the bench and the coach is going to give you the stink guy. And let's, <laughs> you know, try to find a way to make sure that try to limit that as Brad had said about, you know, that risk management, you don't want to pull that out of him though, because I think that's what really makes him special is there's not a lot of guys who are like have the cojones to try to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he's, he's a really special player in that aspect that, you know, it's like, it's like Jack, like they, they're so creative, right. And they're always, um, you know, they're looking to make plays and they're jumping up and taking risks. And that's, what's so exciting about players like that. Right. That's what's so exciting about Luke is the things he's able to do. Um, and then, yeah, Shane, you mentioned it like at the college level, I mean, he, he could make a hundred mistakes and he's always going to make up for it with his skating because he, you know, he can get back and, um, and find ways to, you know, get the puck back and, um, which is great. And I love watching him, you know, use his skating at the collegiate level, but, um, as you guys know, you know, continuing to, to, to work with him on, you know, the importance of, of good sound defensive habits on playing in both ends, you know, focusing on that 200 foot game. Um, those will be things, you know, as a defenseman in the national hockey league, you know, that we're going to have to stress with him and things that he's going to have to continue to work on, um, like any young defenseman, right. In order to make an impact at the next level. And, um, and he's someone that has a, a variety, you know, of, of incredible resources around him um, that'll be on him probably harder than than we will be. But um, but yeah, no, he's a he's a really exciting player. Um, you know, he's been in a great situation there in Michigan. Um, again, like our our um, defensive guru on the development side, Eric Weinrich, has a great relationship, um, you know, with Luke and, and his uh, coaches there at Michigan. And so. It's uh, it's exciting for us to, you know, continue to have a hand in his development and, and obviously organizationally uh, very excited about him uh, when he's ready to join our team. Last player we'd like to ask you about before we end this segment is Chase Stillman. And what I appreciate about his game is he plays with a lot of energy, a lot of competitiveness. And the one thing that stands out to me in his game is his puck support in all zones for a kid that's that young it's one of the things that sort of jumps out to me. And, and at times I think he recognizes he, he will sacrifice offensive opportunities to ensure that he's in the right spot where he needs to be to support the play, to keep the play move, like keep the play alive, you know, or get help, get that puck out. And to me, it says something about the maturity of his game. And I think he could put up far more points in junior than he is. Then I find that, you know, the points he does put up, put up, it's very transferable to the pro game in that respect thoughts on how he's developed and what you've seen from him. Yeah. Well, I don't know if you saw the career highlight game he had a couple of days ago, but they played Mississauga and he had, I think he had four goals and one assist. So we were all, uh, you know, quick to congratulate him on a big game like that. I think for a young player, you know, games like that, they don't come around 
all the time, but they, uh, they do give you a, a confidence. So happy for him. You know, it's not, it's not all about that, but I think, you know, I talked to him briefly and I just said, you continue to kind of play the right way and good things happen. And um, so that was, a, that was a good one for him the other night, but um, yeah, I mean, overall he's, he's, he's obviously a player where, um, you know, we're eager to keep working with and, and excited about having in our player pool. You know, you mentioned it. He's kind of, when he's playing to his foundation keys and he's at his best, he's that kind of energy compete, you know, tilt the ice um, kind of player, that kind of hard nose, um, hard to play against disruptor. And we love to see that in him. You know, he can play with some bite um, and he really, you know, has the ability to impact the game uh, physically and, and with his energy, especially at the junior level. But we're looking, you know, to see, um, how that will translate to our level as well. So he's also a leader on his team this year, um, which I think is great. He's a really likable player in Peterborough. And, um, you know, his staff there is hard on him. I think they're in a good spot. He's in a good spot there, and they continue to push him to elevate his game. Um, and we're there all the time, again, seeing him and working with his coaches to uh, to keep pushing him to be the best player that he can be. So, um, you know, we're excited about about him and, and what he can bring to our lineup, um, again, whenever when he's ready to uh, to join us. Megan, I was going to ask you about his goal scoring rates, actually. So it's, it's interesting you brought up the fact he just had a four-goal game uh, because I felt like from a, a technical perspective or mechanical perspective, when you look at his shooting ability, uh, he has he has solid mechanics. You know, he can rapidly adjust his shooting angle. He has ex excellent hands. They're very dexterous. He knows how to shoot behind screens. But I found that in his minus one season and his draft season, which was admittedly reduced because of uh, the COVID, I found that he wouldn't optimize his shooting windows very well. He, he would look to shoot short side, even though he didn't need to. Right? He wouldn't optimize a far side placement and I found that that continued throughout his entire draft year uh, so I, I was going to ask you do you feel that uh, with his development now do you feel that he's starting to to get there with with knowing when and where and how to time his shooting because he is again mechanically gifted yeah yeah he is and I think he's I think he's definitely growing in those areas and I think he's I think just generally he's he's getting to the puck more I mean getting to the net front more um, and that's where, you know, that's where he's scoring a lot of his goals too, whether he's net front on the power play and creating havoc in there, or whether he's, um, you know, working hard and fighting for pucks in and around the net and below the dots and, um, you know, using his size and his strength and his body to kind of get into some of those greasy areas. Um, that's, that's what we like to see, but yeah, he's, you know, kid's got a great shot. Um, you know, and when he finds himself in the right spot, um, and he, you know, starts to put pucks on net, good things are happening for him. So um, so there's, but you know, there's been a handful of games where he's, he's been continuing to, um, use that size and strength and hunt pucks and, you know, finishing checks and battling net front. And I think for us continually emphasizing and encouraging, encouraging him to play that way, um, you know, he's, his production is improving and so excited for him, um, you know, if he continues to play that way to see where he can take it. Yeah, there's so much road for him too. We forget again how young he is. And, you know, obviously having a father who played in the NHL certainly is not going to hurt him in terms of his development and being prepared and expectations that, you know, you came from a, a father who played in the NHL and he should be able to help you in that respect as well. So there's, he, I, I think he's just a really intriguing player. It reminds me a lot when at that age of Tyler Toffoli in that respect, mm -hmm. just finds a way to like, is to be productive. Um, and has lots of energy and, and grit in his game and um, hunts around the net. And I think he's going to be one of those players that kind of like jumps out at you during playoff time. I'm curious to see um, how he develops. But Megan, thank you very much for coming on our show. Really appreciate the insight and look forward to seeing you in the, and speaking to you in the future. Yeah, thanks, guys. Appreciate it. That's Megan Duggan, Director of Player Development for the New Jersey Devils. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back right after these messages. 
Welcome back to Hockey Prospect Radio. Here's Shane Malloy and Brad Allen. We are back and powered by Instat Hockey, offering a large data and video library of players, teams, and leagues worldwide. We're now going to do our player development segment with Pat Malloy. Uh, Pat, thanks for coming on the show again. We always appreciate it and looking forward to the discussion. Thanks for having me, guys. Uh, this segment topic is recognizing triggers in gameplay to dictate terms and outcomes. So for our listeners out there, uh, can you give us a description of what that means and then how that applies from a practical standpoint? Yeah. I mean, when we play the game, you know, we, we talk a lot about how do we get our players to be adaptable and, and to be able to do things that dictate the outcomes of plays, you know, of shifts and, and ultimately of the game. And, and one of the ways that, that we promote doing that is by recognizing triggers specifically, you know, most specifically when we're in possession of the puck, but it also works, you know, as a, as a person without the puck as well. But, you know, speaking to the possession game triggers where I get to be able to manipulate the terms of play and examples of that would be, you know, for instance, defenders uh, reaching is, is one of the things an extended arm or a reach is a trigger that, that will work with players on recognizing number one, they're now counterbalanced. They're giving you their intention with their stick and that makes them susceptible to attacking into the hands and, and, and cutting back into space because they're not posturally, in a position to be, you know, in the, the, the most optimal stance to defend you. So when we see a player reaching or trying to extend coverage, that's a great opportunity to introduce the idea of a trigger for an offensive player in possession of the puck. Another example of that is with speed differential. Um, you know, we'll watch a Connor McDavid utilize changes of speed, but most importantly, he, he recognizes and sees the trigger that, I have an opportunity to change speeds on a defender who's set at one speed or motion is slow enough that I can accelerate past. And so recognizing those small little differentials where I can either slow down or speed up in order to dictate or to, to acquire the space that I'm looking to acquire. And you know, a third major one that we'll talk about is awareness, you know, recognizing when a defender turns their eyes to the puck or turns their eyes away. So using that element of surprise. So game awareness um, by a defender can be used against them in terms of recognizing, all right, they're not looking at me. So now, you know, the picture that they had just taken is about to change. If I'm really good at identifying, this is a trigger for me to change, you know, position on the ice, change angle on the ice, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you mentioned the off, off the puck triggers as well um, being, potentially skating patterns you're referring to off the puck time and be able to split between defensemen. So they force, it forces communication between them that uh, won't allow them to get themselves defensively in position in time. It's kind of, we always talk about Mark Stone. I feel like again, Mark Stone, a master of this, being able to sneak through backdoor options because he knows how to go through and weave through uh, the defenses off the puck. Is that another specific trigger that, that you're looking at? Yeah, you know, from an off-puck perspective, it's, again, it's using all the tools available to us. But if we know that, you know, in today's game, we want to, you know, defensemen uh, or defending players are looking to face the puck, they're looking toes to the puck, they're making sure they recognize where the threat is. As an off-puck player, creating deceptive movements, creating um, bait-and-switch opportunities where the moment their eyes move somewhere that, that we want them to, or we recognize they're not on me, I can now change the shape of their defense by moving to open space, to soft ice, um, to, to unencumbered ice, 
and, and sort of get that bigger picture view as to how can we change the shape of a team's defense. I'll use that term quite a bit. And what I mean by that is, is, you know, obviously today you'll see it's pretty prevalent in the National Hockey League. You know, everyone likes to, especially in, in deep corner play, they want to overload. They want to, you know, flood that space and take away all your time and space. And so how can we create situations where we can find soft ice and ultimately change the shape of a team's defense by triggering players to do things they're trained not to do? And so by acquiring soft ice, by waiting till sight lines change and then changing the picture that, you know, a defender or a defending team has in their mind, that forces reaction. And so, you know, if they react to our movement, we've now changed their shape. If they don't, you know, they've maintained their shape, but we've changed the, the circumstances by which the play may unfold. So it's all about recognizing opportunities to use players' movements and decisions against them. Let's see, you brought a really great point up, Pat, and I wanted to add to that is in our central vision, we actually have blind spots. And that what the human brain ends up doing is it makes assumptions and it took, like you had mentioned, it takes a picture and we fill in the gaps with assumptions. And the minute we turn back to what we were, what that picture was is we assume that's what it's going to be. Like that's how our brain works. And for the offensive player against the defenseman is being able to use, as you mentioned, those triggers to recognize I can take advantage of a defenseman because the minute he turns away, he's going to assume that picture is similar to what it was before, even if it is a second and a half later. Um, and is that something that you help your players recognize if they're trying to break through into say you're off puck and you're getting into soft ice or trying to find an, a different angle is be able to present something to the defender, knowing that then the, the second he turn averts his eyes is that you can shift your weight and do something different. And then if, when he looks back, he's completely surprised and there might be an overreaction, a trigger based on a trigger reaction based on that. Absolutely. I mean, we'll talk a lot about action creates reaction. And so from that perspective, you know, putting defenders into a situation where, you know, they get fixated on something and then that changes um, that requires them to react. And, and we want to create situations in our play where people are reactive to us. And so you know, there's the old saying of, of you know, you'll hear it quite a lot in, in our industry and, and certainly in team settings is, you know, take what's given. And, and there are times in a game where, you know, a team has played you incredibly well or sealed the situation off and you may have to take what's given. But a proactive approach to things is creating more options for yourself, creating more options for your teammates. And that that extends to off puck players as well. And, you know, when, when we'll do things and look at video and, and, and show players and to talk about pattern recognitions, what do you see? You know, uh, when you first meet a player and you get into the developmental process with them, a lot of times they'll see what they've been told they saw. They'll see the things that they're trained to see, but they can't really see past that. And so oftentimes it's interesting, you know, it can make for dull video in the beginning of players looking at themselves and they don't have the puck because they think their only impact on the play is, well, I have to have the puck to be interesting. The most important player on the ice often becomes a player without the puck. And so for them to recognize triggers and how do I create more opportunity for the player with the puck, then you have a puck possession player 
who's got a proactive mindset and looks to change the shape of defense and looks to dictate by watching for, you know, possession-based triggers. Now you're really starting to get next level in terms of players that can feed off for one another. Uh, is that mostly referring to Pat? Uh, I, I think the best example of this basically ever in our game right now is Brad Marchand and Patrice Bergeron with pick and roll scenarios and how they buy themselves time and space with their picks and how they roll off each other's pressure. Is that kind of another look at, at, at you said, forcing positional switches creates a trigger. I feel like the ability to time pick and roll scenarios with their teammates is one of the best ways to force positional switches. Is that something that you, you, you utilize to your advantage when looking at development? Absolutely. You know, especially when you work in a team setting and then you break it down to the line level, you know, some of those triggers may not just be triggers based on what the other team has done, for instance, reaching or you catch someone flat footed or in a speed differential scenario. It could be that I've recognized here's an incidental contact pick that we are, you know, ahead of in terms of mindset because we have that chemistry as line mates where you recognize the moment I enter this space, I'm going into attack mode to take, you know, the wake from behind you. Um, that's, you know, you talk about chemistry and you talk about the ability to communicate with a teammate, creating triggers with one another to create advantage is another huge opportunity and, and something that I don't think is talked about enough is, you know, why are the best lines in, in the world the best lines in the world? You know, obviously there's there's compatible skill sets. Um, compatible mindsets might be even more important in the ability to re react off of one another from a proactive mindset. I know that if I go here, you're going to go there. And that starts to become, um, you know, something that's next level in terms of creating. And it's very, very hard for another team uh, to defend, especially when it becomes automated for you in terms of, you know, your relationship in, in that training environment. And then ultimately training environment needs to mimic game environment and the uncertainty that goes with that. If you can create those sorts of pathways with a teammate, you know, and those triggers become inherent to you and him, uh, you know, or, or in the female game, it's, it's really no different. And those are next level concepts that I'd love to introduce to the female game. Um, that, that's next level stuff for sure. Um, when I have a whole bunch of questions, but this one specifically is when you first start watching game film with a player and you're asking him what they see, but their tendency is to wait for you to tell them what they see. Is that an opportunity for you to understand from them their ability to task switch, um, their situational awareness, more of like compartmentalization, some learnability? So then you know how to help teach and maybe almost we have this player relearn how he views a game. hundred percent. I mean, in too many scenarios, players are looking for the answers to me. I believe it's more of a guided discovery. You know, a player gets to a certain point based on their ability to process their talent level, their physical attributes. What's vital is that I get to see the game through their eyes and lead them to a place where we can find out, do they recognize a pattern? Can they see that? What, you know, clues or cues do I need to provide to them to see if there's more or are they just saying, well, I was trying to get it to here. Or I was trying to get it deeper. I was trying to beat this player or I was waiting for this, you know, what waiting, well, did you see something that, you know, required you to wait or were you just waiting because you froze up and that's all you had, or did you try to put a puck here because you knew that that was the play 
or you blinded yourself and didn't have cross-body vision or the ability to protect or sustain, uh, you know, possession of a puck long enough for a play to develop. And so, so much goes into sort of figuring out, number one, how they learn, figuring out what they see and don't see, you know, and then, you know, looking at is, is there a skill component missing that allows them to potentially recognize a trigger um, or they can recognize the trigger, but there's a skill component missing to extend possession because that might be the play or to distribute on a, both hands or to change pace. So really that guided discovery becomes recognizing not only how they process, um, but what things may enhance or limit, what strengths can we enhance uh, and leverage against something that maybe we don't do as well. We're going to take a short break on Hockey Prospect Radio. We come back, we'll continue to talk about player development right after these important messages. Prospect News and Analysis. This is Hockey Prospect Radio with Shane Malloy and Brad Allen. We are back and powered by Instat Hockey, offering the largest data and video library of players, teams, and leagues worldwide. We're continuing our player development segment with pat malloy uh the topic in this segment is departmental integration in player development now this could end up being a two-hour chat but we're going to try to keep this down to about 10 minutes um just for (laughs) for this uh because i know we could all three of us can get into it and just uh your thoughts from a player development viewpoint when you're looking at a hockey operations department and integrating with the other departments whether it's you know you know, human performance, which is, you know, really player development as well. But then there's some analytics departments in there and there's the amateur staff, the pro staff, like your trainers, like we could go on and on. And from, but from your perspective of player development, how does that integrate to a level that you deem would be provide not only a competitive edge, but provide the ability to be, for everyone in that department and the other departments to be elastic thinkers and to be able to be highly efficient without being restrictive in terms of following strict models. Yeah. I mean, I, I think our sport has so much to grow um, with this topic. I mean, you know, in my experience, you know, through a couple of national hockey league teams now it's, it's, you know, every team's got strength and conditioning, you know, every team's, it's got a player development department. Every team's got some level of analytics, um, whether they call it that or not. Um, you know, every team's obviously got a pro and an amateur scouting staff. You know, t- to me, uh, I really believe that integration of department and and ultimately with, you know, in my lane in terms of player development, I, I look at the abilities that, that maybe are to come in that building a profile with input from each of the departments to create a model where, you know, you're able to expedite the process to create the the best player athlete uh, to a degree, you know, human within your organization. And, and that can come from a number of different sources, but I, I can speak to the, to the point that from a player development standpoint, you know, how much time I would spend, in consultation with, for instance, the strength and conditioning staff and further to that, uh, you know, the high performance department, if you will, which a lot of teams now are, are starting to have. And within those are data scientists and nutritionists. Um, you know, to, to me, uh, I look at even 
even a little bit deeper and looking at, you know, a department that includes people with, with, you know, behavioral science background, where we recognize what's the makeup of our players, um, figuring out how our players learn, you know, it's not how I teach, it's how a player learns. And so um, the ability to take all of these departments, but find a way to streamline it so that you don't get caught in the mud and it becomes a, a fluid and streamlined approach to developing athlete, player, and human, um, I think is the next cusp of, of figuring out how do we make people better within an organization. And I know, Shane, you've talked about this before, that you know the National Hockey League really is a group of Fortune 500 companies. Um, I, I think when we look at that, and you look at some of the best companies in the world, um, the, the resources properly done and properly, you know, funded and, and with a plan in place to implement, I think the sky is the limit in terms of the ability to take that integration approach and create better players in the sport. Well, integration is the key and that's the challenge. It is the hardest thing to do. I mean, it's one of the reasons why I chose the PhD program I'm in. It's, I'm doing interdisciplinary studies, which is you're integrating multiple disciplines together to solve a complex problem. And it's a no different than Fortune 500 companies, research and development departments. They implement the same strategies and spending the resources to hire the people that are experts in their field, not only at an academic level, but at a practical experience level and recognizing that what is the ROI of the return of hiring people like that instead of turning around and hiring like an undergrad student who just graduated to work in your analytics department, who doesn't have the graduate level experience in terms of re- of research and doesn't have the practical experience to recognize when mistakes have been made and to reevaluate models and how do they integrate that into the other departments. That's the challenge I see Pat and Brad and Brad, you can speak to that from like from a, a scouting perspective and ha- what you're doing with your scouting school and how that's being built and that level of integration as well. Yeah, from from a, the scouting school perspective, I'm trying to create a what we're discussing here in terms of merging and networking communications at a higher level between departments. There's there's some of that within what I'm trying to do when it comes to giving when, when I discuss with executives or scouts or, or player development coaches, a lot of them tell me that it's mostly based off of communication through just sitting in a rink together. I'm trying to create a visual communication structure so that if you watch a player visually, you can break them down in real time together, or you can have somebody who's scouting do it as well, and then you can go back and forth with that person. I feel it creates a better mode of communication. And then to with Pat's situation, I think – Pat, I'd love for you to speak about this. Uh, I feel like there's a lot of gray when it comes to if a prospect fails. Uh, some will blame the scouting staff. Others will blame development. Which is it? Uh, my question for Pat, which relates to this, is do you feel that there's a correlation uh, with failed prospects when it comes to uh, scouts not communicating with development coaches what they actually saw on that player as you get them and acquire them? You know, yeah, 100%. I mean, kind of the way I en- envision it, is that I, I, you know, as a person in a development department would always, I love to know, you know, when you draft a prospect, what the, the organizational view of what the trajectory of that player is, because that helps us understand what drew our organization to that player. And, and well, the different you to frame it. That, 
Yeah, yeah, because, I mean, it, it's great to say, well, we have player X. I, I want to know from an organizational standard, what was it that we saw? Or what is it that we envisioned this player to be? And then when we see them perform and you get them into the organization and you start to be able to decipher what they are as a player, as a person, um, as an athlete, you know, and you start to create that individualized plan, it allows you a little bit more um, granularity in terms of, well, skating is an area of improvement. Okay. But what skating? I mean, I've found myself in the situation where I'll watch a skating coach working on things with a player and, you know, I'll find myself going to the strength and conditioning staff and saying, can I get a makeup on? And all of a sudden you find that, wait a second, there's strength and equities left to right. There's impingements on that hip versus that hip, but we've got a skating coach kind of running blind, um, you know, trying to make changes to a player that physically isn't in a position to make those changes. And so that takes a conversation and some sharing of data. And all of a sudden the time that you spend is now going to be more efficient because you're working on the right things at the right stage of development. And you're ensuring that you're not addressing a problem that's compounded by other issues. Um, you know, I, I'd like to see the concepts of, you know, from a, um, a mental performance side of things. Well, why is this player highly touted? Why has this player been a high performer? Why is this player sort of struggling to reach at this point? Well, maybe we find out that they don't have great stress mitigation skills. And so I'm drilling them and I'm giving them the, you know, let's try this or let's try that. Or we have a, you know, a player development coach that's, you know, when I played, it worked like this and try this. When really what it is, is there's not enough stress mitigation strategies in place for that particular player because they don't do well in those scenarios. But that's something that can be worked through. But if we don't know and we don't share those things, oftentimes, um, you know, the treatment doesn't necessarily um, work on the ailment unless we've got the proper diagnosis and the proper chain of events that have gone into creating the best environment um, for, a, for a prospect to bloom. Well, that moves along to some of the things we've discussed in the past is like solve the right problem in that respect. And you, you may not know what the right problem is if you don't have the right answers. And I think a some of the research that I've been working on really pushes towards, I think sometimes we have an, a misunderstanding of what attributes and skills are and understanding the attributes of the player in terms of what's between his ears in terms of, as you mentioned, you know, Pat and, and Brad on occasions, like, like mental acuity and what's their like drive attributes and grit attributes and where your strengths and weaknesses lie within that and how what's your learnability maybe you're a player who doesn't handle task switching very well i mean these are all things that if tested properly and then continually like reassess on a player because if you're going to spend that amount of money on a player damn you should like make sure you know the mental side of that player then that allows you to help them get better it, it just you can't keep throwing them on the ice and hope it's going to work right because it just doesn't work that it just you're setting yourself up for failure too many times. And that's the question that Brad said, like if a player fails, how do we know? Like where, what was the problem from that respect? So Pat, once again, great segments, uh, really appreciate your insight and look forward to speaking with you next week. Thanks very much for having me guys. That's Pat Malloy player development. Uh, We're going to take a quick break and we'll return right after these important messages. 
Welcome to Hockey Prospect Radio, your voice for prospect news and analysis on Sirius XM NHL Network Radio. Now, here's your hosts, Shane Malloy and Brad Allen. We're back and powered by Outside Edge Hockey, hockey player development at outsideedge.ca. We're now going to talk about some players for the 2023 NHL draft that will be on the new November list for hockeyprospect.com that will come out early next week on November 30th. I for the launch date of that. So I'm looking forward to seeing Brad what you guys come up with so that I can have you guys on the show again then tell you that I think you're all crazy. Um <laughs> now, granted I know you, you guys the have the ones I promise you that. I know you guys have to do this because public consumption uh, forces you guys to put out, put out a list in November. You know my rant about you know doing data you know assessment uh, while you're still in data collection mode and how biased mm-hmm. it makes it and um, how it actually hurts uh, organizations when they do that. But you guys have public consumption, so you have to do that. But in that vein, let's talk about some players that obviously are going to be top of your guys' list. And number one is Connor Bedard who offensively is obviously having a monster season when you're over two points a game for the Regina Pats. What I'm most interested to get your thoughts on is to break his game down and look at it from, I'm more interested off the puck with Connor Bedard than I really am. I'm not actually concerned with when he has the puck on his stick. What I am interested in is what he does when he doesn't have the puck and not even necessarily in the def- um, offensive zone, but really in the neutral zone, defensive zone, from your viewings of what you've seen, I've watched him on film. I haven't got out West yet. I will be doing that in the new year. Just your thoughts on that. And in terms of how adaptable he is to those situations and does he recognize what he needs to do before he turns pro? Yeah. So it- I'll give a stylistic comparison to start just for our viewers to get a, a general understanding of the player and why he's so high. Think again, this is stylistic comparables. Every player is their own player. Okay. So just in terms of visual indicators, in terms of skill set and how they operate at times, there's some Cole Caulfield merged with some Cole Perfetti. That's kind of how I look at this player. There's the sniping aspect of Caulfield. There's the playmaking aspect of Perfetti. And uh, unlike Caulfield and Perfetti, who I felt had more uh, warts to their game at the same age, I feel that Perfetti, or that uh, Bedard is more well-rounded than, than both. And it goes back to what you said about uh, the defensive habits and, and the attention to detail off the puck. He is a 200-foot player. He does play with a level of maturity. The, the thing that's really much better at the same age than, say, Perfetti with Bedard is the pacing of play. He stays above the puck more often. He doesn't get caught in transition trying to defend as often as Perfetti did. And that's because the motor revs higher and the skating is more powerful. So when you look at the transitional upside of, of, um, of Bedard relative to Caulfield and Perfetti, I think he does have an advantage. And then when it comes to the defensive side, the main thing with Bedard is when you see a smaller forward, you're always looking to see if one, they understand how to take advantage of their smaller frame so they can actually uh, leverage against larger opponents successfully, meaning coming up underneath the hands, being able to cut through them, meaning being able to take advantage of, of a bigger player uh, using power, pressing them uh, against a wall and then be able to spin off of that, right? Being able to react dynamically resistance is a phrase I like to use w- w- regarding that. He has those 
attributes, meaning during wall battles, he can win more often than you would think he would, meaning when it comes to having defensively positionally switch and take a check while still remaining on balance, being able to cut down uh, the, the opposing player, he can do that. So I think really when you look at Bedard, obviously the ceiling is sky high. There's a reason that uh, he's, he's considered a, an elite prospect, but the other side is very good too. Let's talk about Leo Carlson. Um, look, and when you get a six foot three frame around 200 pounds, centerman, he's playing in the Swedish elite league is performing exceptionally well for someone of that age group. What stands out to you from his game? Oh, there's so much, you know, going into the season, I hadn't seen him a ton. So I, I was mostly relying on the same from Swedish yeah. scouts. I had, you know, I, I didn't know. Uh, I'll be honest. I personally, I think he's right there with Bedard and I think he's, should potentially be number one overall. I think he's that good. I uh, think Leon Dreisaitl with better skating at the same age and playing in a more difficult right. league, right? We're yeah. talking an incredible prospect here. Not a, not a very good one or not one you put too much further down than Bedard. This is an elite prospect. What's fascinating about Leo, Carl, uh, Leo Carlson is the background. So in Owen, Owen Pickering, who was drafted by Pittsburgh last year in the first round, he had a gigantic growth spurt. Why that matters because Owen Pickering used deception and incorporated his deceptive uh, his deception and his offensive awareness like a smaller forward in a 6-4-4 frame. That's exactly what's happened with Leo Carlson because Leo Carlson was a smaller forward in Farshistad's system. He was actually cut by Farshistad. Orebro picked him up, which is a rival organization, and uh, Orebro got an opportunity to develop him, and then the growth spurt occurred. And here we are with a six, three and a half, six four, two hundred 200-pound monster of an athlete who, who can skate well for his size. And most importantly, he can play like a smaller forward when you should play like a smaller forward, meaning when he incorporates deception first, meaning he uses trapdoor options, he uses bait and switch options. He's, he's very difficult to read. Now, that doesn't mean he can't play a physical game. He can absolutely play a power game. And that's why I'm so high on him. He's deceptive when he needs to be, but when it comes to driving on his backhand and going net front, he can do that too. There's a tremendous amount of upside with Leo Carlson. For my money, one of the top five playmakers in this draft, if not top three. And when you got the range that he has with the frame, with the skill set, the talent, the 200-foot game, you're talking about a total complete package who I think is very likely to play center as opposed to wing. He's on the wing now. I think there's an opportunity to play center down the line. What makes him, in, what I found intriguing was that through that growth spurt and that jump, he wasn't that gangly, you know, uncoordinated athlete. It actually, there was a smooth transition. So he's one of the rarities. Most of the time there is some bumps in that road. When you're transitioning, you jump like four or five or six inches in a really short period of time. And I'm talking about a year. That's a lot of growth in a year that generally tends to happen. So that's what I am. I'm intrigued by him because, there's no there's no delay in his development. It's just from one step to the next step to the next step. And there wasn't a year for him to catch up. And that's like that what's I think that's what really makes him rare. I also want to get your thoughts on Adam Fantilli. So there is a possibility that, you know, he's going to be knocking on that door and that, you know, that top three, top four, of course, as well. And thoughts on his transition jumping out of the USHL into, you know, into University of Michigan as a freshman and performing the way he has. Yeah. It, it's very intriguing at the top because what you're looking at stylistically is three very different players. Right. right? And, and sometimes like for me, myself personally, I love gigantic power playmaking 
forwards. Who does? That, <laughs> I love them, right? You can't contain them. They drive your teams crazy. They allow weighted minutes in playoff hockey, which I think is a critical component that's not discussed enough publicly. You get to Adam Fentili, I bring up the weighted minutes and segue into him for a reason. Adam Fentili thinks somehow he has tricked himself into believing he's a fourth line grinder. And I mean that in the best way possible. He's a tremendous talent. Like Sidney Crosby in that he's respect. Exactly. There is no off switch in work ethic. He is incredibly tenacious. He's an athlete. He's incredibly powerful and explosive. He, there is no, it's, there's 10 effort levels to him per play if there has to be. He never, see, and one thing I'll bring up with Fentili that's extremely rare, and I feel like he should be tested in the lab to see where he's at because they're off the charts. His conditioning. I, the 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 kid yeah, his, VO, not, his vo2 must be VO2 super max high must be off the chain I, it's, yeah. it's unbelievable how hard he plays and how long he can extend the play within a shift at this age it really it truly is amazing to see he's a, he's a gifted athlete and it really feeds back into his game because believe me you don't have to wait long to see him impact again he's everywhere and sometimes it goes against him you know we talked earlier uh, about uh, luke hughes Right, the the ability to play at such a high pulse and have a skating ability sometimes it leads to structural breakdown and and he, he needs to adjust himself. Fintili has a little bit of that uh, regarding his playmaking relative to the other top guys here. When you look at Connor Bedard, you look at Leo Carlson, you look at Matt Bemichkov, uh, Andrew Crystal is another guy we'll talk about. Their playmaking, the way they operate within their windows within their playmaking, their timing is superior overall in terms of their consistency relative to Fentili, but Fentili has the highest motor. So there's this give and take. Another aspect that makes Fentili fascinating is that out of any of these players we're discussing, I think he has the opportunity to have the most high danger chances per 60 when he reaches the NHL. However, the question is of execution. Leo Carlson and Bedard and Mitch, these are brilliant executors. They don't need a lot of opportunities. Fentili needs more than them. That doesn't mean he's not a good executor. He is. There's a reason his production is off the charts. Yes, he's on an all-star team in college, but his production's there for a reason. He's a gifted technical shooter. He can make make a pass, right? I don't want people thinking he can't make a play. He's still a good playmaker, just relative to the other top-end guys. He's not as good, right? So He may be able to compensate with, like, in a situation where he can create that because of his his size and his strength. Of course, he, he's a player who can buy himself more time and space when he needs to. Absolutely. His handling is, is spectacular. When, it looks at, when you look at his transitional adaptive handling ability off the rush, it is the most elite. I think it's even above Connor Bedard's because of the power difference, because of the size advantage, right? Uh, that said, when you look at the 200-foot game, this is where it gets even more fascinating to me because let's say Fentili doesn't produce at the same rate as Bedard, Carlson, uh, and maybe even Mitchkov, uh, which I think is – very possible. But he's, he's great def- but he's good defensively. Exactly. Yeah. He's going to be yeah. extremely impressive at 200 foot player. He's going to be very difficult to deal with defensively because of the conditioning. So it's going to be a very interesting battle among the top here. It's a lead at the top. Absolutely. We're going to take a short break on Hockey Prospect Radio. We come back, we'll continue to talk about the 2023 draft right after these moments. <laughs> You're listening to Hockey Prospect Radio on Sirius XM NHL Network Radio. Here's Shane Malloy and Brad Allen. We are back and powered by Outside Edge Hockey, hockey player development at OutsideEdge.ca. We're continuing to talk about the 2023 NHL draft. HockeyProspect.com is going to be putting out their 
new list on November 30th. So we're previewing some players that are going to be on that list. Uh, we need to obviously talk about, because we talked about the first three players in the last segment, is Matt Faye Mitchkoff. So from his perspective, yes, he's a winger. Um, thoughts on him in terms of the continued development of him? Because when I watch him play, and it's really unfortunate we can't see him live, um, you know, with St. Petersburg, it's just so how absolute dynamic he is with the puck or even when he's on a rush with a teammate and the defensemen are crapping their pants, what he's going to do next. And he doesn't even have the puck. Like he reminds me so much and I'm not comparing the players, but when I watched um, Patrick Kane in his draft year, there's so many similarities in terms of like how they play and how they approach the offensive when they enter the offensive blue line. It's just fun to me. And I remember being on the, like on the draft floor when we had fans coming up to us and Chicago was picking first overall and the fans yelling at us, no, we can't take Patrick Kane. He's too small. I'm like, don't worry. He's going to be great. <laughs> like, Don't worry about <laughs> it. Like thoughts on Matt Faye and his next steps, because boy, this kid is just, he's so dynamic and he creates so much time and space for himself and others. It's like, I don't see why he won't be a dynamic player in the NHL. Mm. So there's a couple of points. The, the first thing I'll start off by saying is that when you look, I think there's an elite four to five players here, really, yeah. realistically. And Matthew is one of them, but he has the worst toolkit of the top end, meaning height relative to skating ability. It's not bad. It's a, it's still slightly above average. Lots of room to grow though. Definitely some room. He is already uh, developed to a degree, but yes, of course he can get stronger, more physically developed. Um, but when you look at him relative to Carlson Fintili, right, it's not close in terms right. of toolkit. So what, what you're looking at with Matt Bay is, to your, to your point, is what are some of the off-the-puck instincts that allow him to set up so he doesn't have to be a possession driver as often as they do, right? And one of the most interesting and impressive aspects of this player is, you know, I usually discuss match adherence to the play during loose puck races when I break down prospects and player evaluations and, and, and write about that. But in terms of him, he is so gifted at recognizing the window and pocket of time he has to get into a space and then matching the urgency required to get into it by using his skating base to the best he can, best of, of his abilities. And then that's what really he's, like he's yeah, like a jet fighter. He's like a jet fighter. Yeah. Exactly. In that respect. So, so yeah, he, he can explode through the neutral zone, become the backdoor option. And then it, what we discussed earlier with Pat Malloy, making sure that he understands and recognizes when a defenseman has stopped scanning him bypass the defense and get get through the back door, right? So there's that aspect to him. When you combine that aspect to him with brilliant shot quality, that's where you see the full range of potential with a shot. It's a, it's a real weapon. It's, it's Now, mechanically, I would argue it's not the best, actually, at the top end. It's exceptional. But it's not the best. But what is the best and what's more subtle and what you don't see unless you really start evaluating them is the is the seam recognition on goalies. You know, I... I, I as, as some people or our listeners know, I am a goalie scout. One advantage I get to being a goalie scout as well as, you know, an everything scout is that when you have a player like Matthew Mitchkov, you get to see how he times a goalie uh, removing himself from a post, for instance, then changing the safe uh, transitioning between movements. So he get, you get to see how he times a goalie's the, post integration. When the goalie weight shifts. Exactly. When the yeah. goalie is trying to make a, a, a micro adjustment or, or post integration transfer into something, he is the best 
I have ever scouted in the last five to six years at this. He has a six, a very unnatural sixth sense to him where he doesn't need to see the goalie. He just knows. And that's just something you can't. It's just a Maybe he sees it gift. so quickly he can process that. Like well, he has that mental it, it, image. It, what it goes back to is exactly what you just said. Mental imaging, be able to know after seeing the goalie within two seconds, two and a half seconds, three seconds, exactly what that means for where the goalie is going to be moving based off of his movement. It's just a unique skill set. It does give him a tremendous edge in terms of goal scoring upside. It's why his goal scoring rates are right now, I believe, historic in the VHL and why he absolutely destroyed the U-17s uh, in minus two and then getting to play in SK as a 16-year-old in, in the KHL, which is extremely, extremely rare. Um, there's there's not a whole lot missing. You know, he's a, he's a special prospect, as is obviously the rest of the kids we're talking about. Let's talk about Andrew Crystal, um, undersized player, but also an incredible point producer. And you're in the dub, and I was in Vancouver for 16 years and in Calgary for another three and putting up two points on average in the dub as a smaller forward says something about your ability to create like uh, like something out of nothing. Well, it's just, just to your point, something out of nothing. That is the, the specialty of Andrew Crystal. He, okay, in terms of playmaking skill set, he's right there at the same age. I believe he's right there at the same age as Johnny Gaudreau. He's that special. Now, that does not mean he's Johnny Gaudreau. Okay? He does not have the edge work of Gaudreau. He's going to have to set up plays differently than Gaudreau. But in terms of technical playmaking ability, execution rates, seeing the ice, this is the next Johnny Hockey. He's that special. I think he's the best playmaker in the entire draft. And he needs to be because he's not very big. Okay, When you're talking about that toolkit that we just discussed with Mitchkov, I would argue his is the worst of the top-end prospects. So the playmaking needs to be that good. His, his ability to read the play has to be that much better. His adaptive process, his preset processing, his ability to tactically see the ice and then be the, be the kid who plays 4D chess while everybody else plays checkers. That's his game, and he is incredible at it. He also is one of the most unique and creative playmakers I've seen. For instance, uh, so for some of the old-school folks who listen to our program, uh, some of you might remember the Pavel Bure breakaway where he did the skate kit back to himself to extend past, I can't remember which goalie did it, but he extended past the, the goalie using the skate kick as, as the, uh, the initial phase of his deke. Well, I've seen Andrew Crystal do the same thing just to extend his hook pass back to his defenseman down the line. We're talking extremely elite, highly technical, sophisticated player who's tiny and it won't matter. And that's rare for me to say. I know publicly you see online scouts a lot. They love to boost up smaller forwards. I'm not one of those people. Unless I really, really, really think that that player can play, uh, I, I usually actually do not try to boost him in any capacity. And with Andrew Crystal, this is as elite as it gets. He's, it does not, he could be the size of a thumb monkey, and I'm drafting him top five. He's that special. He's, he's incredible. So I, I'm very excited to see what he, uh, what he looks like uh, by the end of the year here because he, he's right there with Bedard. He really is. Yeah, I'm really interested to see how when the calendar turns after Christmas and things tighten up in the dub and they're charging towards the playoffs and he's going to get targeted. There's some mean defensemen in the dub. I'm just curious to see how he continues to handle that and adapts. If he continues to adapt and just finds a way. I agree. I agree. Uh, I, I just, I find him really fascinating. I want to get your thoughts on Dmitry uh, Shemeshev a big lanky defenseman out of Russia and thoughts on him. And look, I know he's dinged up at the moment and has played, you know, games between, you know, the MHL and the K KHL thoughts on him overall as a prospect. 
Okay, again, stylistic comparison. Take it for what it is. He's a blend of Artem Grushnikov, who's a shutdown defenseman that Dallas drafted in, like. the, yeah. in the second round. I love him. I think he's going to be an elite shutdown player, an exceptional insulator for Dallas. And then um, Simon Edmondson. So you blend Simon Edmondson with Artem Grushnikov. That is, that's a heck of a prospect. And that's what I think Dmitry Simashev is showing that he can be to a degree. Uh, the best toolkit in the draft uh, forward or defenseman, best toolkit in the draft. He's six, four and a half, 200 pounds, best skater in the, in the draft. Just an incredible skater. Brilliant to get in off his center line. He's an incredible athlete. He has three-point flexion, proper posture, phenomenal edge work, knows how to time spinning off pressure, knows how to utilize the skating to his advantage. Um, the, the, the big thing that's fascinating about him is just the ceiling because the floor is di- diamond encrusted to me. As long as he's willing to come over, it's diamond incredible. There's no way he's not playing. He's, he's defensively responsible. He reads the play well. He's intelligent. He can buy himself so much time and space with his handling and skating combination. And sometimes you you, you love both attributes. But they don't know how to merge together on a prospect. This right. is a player who knows how to incorporate lateral cutbacks and be able to make trap triangle deeks. He can do everything, right? So when, when you're looking at the potential form, the one thing that admittedly we're still waiting to see more because he's injured, we need a couple more viewings here to figure this out, is how gifted is his technical playmaking and the reason I bring up the playmaking aspect is because like Simon Edmondson which is why I give you the stylistic comparison they both are not great shooters they're more muffin shooters okay they don't they had the handling but they didn't know how to merge the handling and you merge their dexterity into their shooting at that age right so when it comes to the playmaking that's going to be really based based off his playmaking will be will determine his overall ranking for us as the season progresses but for my money this is the most interesting defenseman in this draft class in a weak defensive class by the way one of the things that makes me makes him interesting to me is that we talk about stylistically is finding a, a player who can play big minutes in a top 4 and can be the defensive insulator for a more offensive defenseman but still can make those passes that are necessary to get it into that player's hands. Like he may be that perfect version of that, not even perfect, but he may be that version that you and I keep talking about is finding that insulator that I want. Yeah. Right. Like, cause we're all about like, it's great to have the offensive defenseman and the rare and like to have them, but they got to be matched up well with somebody. And you're always hunting for those guys too, within an organization when you're going to the draft. So for me, I'm really intrigued by that next step for him. And there's lots lots of runway left, so we'll see what happens. But Brad and I are going to take a short break, and we'll be back on Hockey Prospect Radio right after these messages. Welcome back to Hockey Prospect Radio. Here's Shane Malloy and Brad Allen. We are back and powered by PowerPlayer, hockey player development software at thepowerplayer.com. This is our regular segment with Dr. Kevin Willis, sports psychologist and mental coach in our segment called It's All Mental. Dr. Willis, thank you very much for coming on our show once again. Hey, guys. How's it going? Things are great. And as we continue to go through your book, Hockey Grit, Grind in Mind, we are now into Chapter 5, which is practice. The topic this week in this segment is choosing deliberate practice. It's interesting that this is in your book. I've read this subject matter in some other books about deliberate practice and the difference between just going on, going on the ice or just training or whatever you're doing, whether you're a player or an executive or whatever your, you know, vocation is 
and trying to get better at that. Cause I had read a book on a bunch of different aspects of looking at people that work in an industry for up to 10 years and did they actually get, have they been improving? Had they get better? And it was about 77% of the people in any vocation actually got worse at their job after 10 years comparative to their first three years that they were there, even though they were new because they stopped their growth mindset and their deliberate practice to get better. And they just sort of went, kept going through the motions. So in your clinical work and you're working with young hockey players, um, what are the like some of the things that you discuss with them about choosing deliberate practice and why it's so imperative to the continuous growth, not just in their skill set, but more importantly in their mental and emotional capabilities? Because I always look at it this, Dr. Willis, is that you don't rise to your training, you fall to your habits. And yes. when when stress hits you, you always end up falling back to what you're comfortable with and if what you're comfortable with isn't at a high level you're gonna get you're not gonna get the results that you want oh my gosh you you nailed it you nailed it um, and then and here's the thing your first comment about the different professions and how they are worse after years and years versus better um, one of the professions is is being a doctor right being a medical doctor and 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 that's scary right to think that the doctor that just came out of school might be a little bit more in tune than the, than the one that's been in practice for 10 or 15 years. That's scary, but that's not a rule. It is a potential, right? And it really comes down to what you just mentioned. And that is the idea that we have to continue to challenge ourselves. We have to continue to, to push ourselves to learn more and more. It's not, you know, your, your comment about how do I address these guys that are, you know, in the game and trying to be their best and trying to move up and play at higher levels this is an idea that I don't need you to understand the details of it, but at an early age, I need you to understand the concept of it. And that is you don't learn something once and then go on and just say, okay, I've learned that. Let me do the next thing. Okay. I've learned that. Let me do the next thing. It's not that it's about learning over and over and over and over again. Right. And if you look at my coaching program, you'll notice that it's the same for all the levels. And what I mean is that there's a foundation level, there's a media intermediate level, and then there's a high sort of an elite level. And I do that for every single um, age group and, and, and skill group that I, that I work with. And that's because it's not the same exact content, but it's the same concept, right? That we have to work on fundamentals. We have to work those into, you know, becoming automatic habit. And then we have to continue elevate, elevate, elevate. I love your comment about we don't rise to sort of our goals and our aspirations. We fall to our habits, the things that we do when we're not thinking. Uh, And when you're under pressure, our brains stop thinking. So if we don't develop those habits at a high level, then guess what? Our, our performance at in, under pressure when it matters the most is less, right? It's, it's not as, as functional. So to, to sort of get into this idea of deliberate practice, it's, it's the idea that you have to be intentional with the idea that I am developing my body. I'm developing my mind. I am working on skills that I'm going to use throughout my, my career in this game. And if you just, go into this thinking, well, I've already done that, or I'm already really good at that. And I don't need to work on it anymore. Those are the guys that are going to get shuffled out. And it's, and it's not right because they could have massive potential, 
but it's reality because they've sort of said, oh, I'm ready to work on the next thing and the next thing. Um, so, you know, I, I, I sort of look at what you guys do and your ability to scout players and see what they're capable of and see potential and all that kind of stuff. Do you notice, do you notice practice habits, different practice habits in the players that, you know, are highly touted or the ones that you see massive potential versus the ones that, you know, they're good, but for whatever reason, there's something about the way they practice that, um, is worrisome, right? Do you guys see that? I'm sure you do, but I mean, is that something that you process and, and track and all that kind of stuff? Uh, well, to answer your question from my, my perspective, the, the main thing that we look for when it comes to development curves is if you take a, take a player from the beginning of the season, let's use an example in real time, Matthew Nyes. Um, he has a similar situation as a, a former drafted player, Matt Boldy, in the sense that they both have tremendous tools, and because of those tools, they both are in an experimentation phase and they're trying to figure out exactly where they can implement uh, their, their size and their hand combination on the ice to get the, the most optimal play. And so what I'm looking for, uh, what I look for from Matt Boldy and which he did show and what I look for from Matthew Nyes and he is now showing it the, towards the end of the season here is that they're starting to, to recognize within their skill acquisition, which skill is the best in each area of the ice to have the most success. And that, and, and it shows in their production, right? Uh, usually at the start of the season, you see these types of players um, have difficulty finishing, which is exactly what occurred with Matthew Nyes. It was less of a factor for, for Boldy, but definitely a factor for Matthew Nyes. And now towards the end of the season, you're starting to see him put, to, put his shot together at range because he has the mechanics, but he didn't know when and where he should shoot. Now he's starting to learn that process. Part of that is the practice off the ice. It, it really is the, the, the drilling off the ice. It's, the, it's the, what you say when it comes to the, uh, the, the type of practice that he's doing, that effortful practice where he's engaged. You can tell that that's coming through. Right. And that's very important yeah. to see that adaptation. Um, the, the question I had for you, Kevin, was we just had our skills and development coach on uh, Pat Malloy, and he discussed the process. Uh, he's, he's somebody who formerly worked with Nick Haig, who was uh, severely knock-kneed. And now there's a there's a prospect in this draft who is also severely knock-kneed in Brent Clark. And his task was rebuilding, essentially, um, Nick Haig and Brent Clark and trying to build the help build the musculature around uh, their knee ligaments so that they could skate better with better posture. Okay. Now the, the thing that was interesting that he said though, was he said that it's very dry, you know, and, and I, I told him how I came from a strength and conditioning background where, yeah, a lot of it's just repetition. So my mm -hmm. question for you is how do you, uh, when, when you look at this effortful, almost attention to the development process in terms of practice, what do you say when it comes to the dry approach and just putting in those repetition? Is it, is it about, uh, I guess the term would be going back, is it about persistence? Is it just about the kids staying level-headed and staying persistent through that process for you? Is there something else there in terms of your practice philosophy that you think you can incorporate? Yeah, well, you know, it comes down to a, a be, be honest with you, a personality trait, right? The the willingness to do something over and over and over again, um, just because the coach told you to do it, versus trying something new. I've done that. Let me do something else, coach. Come on, come on, coach. This is boring. Can we do something else, right? So that's a personality trait that would definitely lend itself to making something easier or more difficult when it comes to being, you know, really purposeful in your practice approach. Uh, so that would be one thing that I would like to know about that player. Where are they? What is their, you know, personality when it comes to doing stuff like that? Because if they are that 
adventurous type that gets bored really fast and just can't stand doing things over and over again. I would need to know that because I got to ride those guys a little bit harder because just because they're ready to go on to the next thing doesn't mean they're ready to go on to the next thing. And so my job then is to keep them focused. And because I know their tendency is to sort of get away from it, then I got to be a little bit of a hard ass to keep them on task. Somebody else who is really good about repetition, doing things over and over again, and they could do it till they fall over dead because it's just not that big a deal. I don't have to worry about that as much. And that's part about going back to know your players, know their tendencies, know their personality, know their hockey type, right? Is that, you know, what are their tendencies so that I can sort of manage um, with that. But then we're going to jump into here in a minute about you know, the, how you practice matters and the different aspects of deliberate practice. And, and we'll sort of get into that again in the repetition side of it, because at the end of the day, you know, we've got to take these things and turn them into automatic habit. And that doesn't come by doing it just a few times that comes from doing it over and over, just like we talked about last week, you know, we're increasing the myelin around the neurons that make the muscle fibers fire. Right. And, and by doing that, we are making it more likely that they're going to do the right thing at the right time because we drilled it into them. We've literally changed their physiology to do a specific skill because we drilled it into them. We're going to take a quick break on Hockey Prospect Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Did you know you can open Upper Deck Hockey Packs any time of the day from anywhere in the world? Well, if you haven't checked out Upper Deck ePack yet, you're really missing out. Open NHL trading cards from your smartphone, tablet, or computer and conduct trades with other collectors all over the world. These are not just digital cards. You can actually store cards for free on Upper Deck ePack and have them shipped to you for a nominal fee. Check out the new wave of collecting at UpperDeckEPack.com. That's UpperDeck, the letter E, and Pack.com. Instat Hockey offers the largest data and video library of players, teams, and leagues worldwide. Trusted by leagues, teams, coaches, and scouts at every level of the game. There is no better choice than Instat to help in the areas of evaluation, development, and exposure for your brand. Their unmatched database saves coaches and scouts hours of time as individual player shifts and stats are pre-cut into separate playlists. Also, the option to edit, share, or download your own clips using Instat Instat's video editing tools. Visit instatsport.com slash hockey today for more information. Instat, the Institute of Statistics. What does every competitive hockey player, no matter their age or ability level, need from their coaches? They need knowledge that'll help them improve in specific areas, and they need to know how they're doing. PowerPlayer brings clarity to the development process and helps build stronger relationships and trust between coaches, players, and parents. A feedback platform built around performance evaluation system, PowerPlayer helps coaches provide individualized instruction, performance metrics, and ratings, and comments and video directly to players. Visit thepowerplayer.com today and get in the feedback game. Outside Edge has built a reputation for guiding hockey players toward their potential and provides on- and off-ice development programs for hockey players. Outside Edge Hockey Development operates all programs on the philosophy of quality over quantity. Our strength, skills, and mental coaches understand the demands of the game and use this knowledge to develop strength, speed, and energy systems so our athletes can reach their potential. The Outside Edge programming features KPI-based strength and conditioning programs, skating, and skill development sessions for pro, junior, midget, bantam, and peewee. Contact us today at outsideedge.ca. Down 
Prospect News and Analysis. This is Hockey Prospect Radio with Shane Malloy and Brad Allen. We are back and powered by the Power Player, hockey player development software at thepowerplayer.com. We're speaking with Dr. Kevin Willis, breaking down his book, Hockey Grit, Grind and Mind. We're in Chapter 5, Practice, and the topic in this segment is how you practice matters. Um, to go back to actually some of your, your question initially uh, and your commentary, Dr. Willis, in the last segment, one of the things that you know stood out to me, and I would go to NHL practices in the morning because I want to watch the young players that get called up. So my focus was always on the rookies and the young players. I want to know, because I'd see them in the American League, and then I want to see how they play against in the pros. So I go watch practice and then I go get, I go talk to some veteran players that I'd known since junior and pull them to the side. And I'd ask some questions about the young players practice habits. I'm like, what do you think? Do you think they're ready? And they had never seen this player play before. And he's like, he's not ready. And it's all based on how the player had practiced, not just in, in that, you know, morning game skate but in some other practices he had seen him in and based just on practicing without ever seeing the player play they 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 could give me a like really high probability whether the kid was ready to make it into the NHL or not and I actually started tracking it and it was in like the high 80s to 90 percent accurate they just knew based on that so you know going back to that about how you practice matters like if any of the young prospects are listening, it, when the veteran players in your team are telling you this is what you need to do in practice, they're not telling you for like just for kicks and giggles. It, they're saying it for a reason, uh, specifically because they want to win. They know you're playing in the game and this is going to matter. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's when I really noticed uh, sort of the the intention of practice having such a major impact is working with NCAA teams. And, you know, these guys are, are dying to get a sweater and literally it's almost down to, and I know it's junior teams and even pro teams for the most part, but it's really interesting in D1 to watch these guys that, that really want to play and they're right at the edge and they probably could play and they could probably do just fine, but for whatever reason, they're just not getting their shot. And so the ones that I can work with, and I teach them these skills around deliberate practice and how you practice matters, not just in your development, but in perception, right? Just how other people see you. And that's when it really sort of started to, I, I could create really good um, sort of stories for my younger players that this matters because on a younger team, you're going to play whether you, you know, had a great practice or not. It really doesn't matter. There's only so many people on the team and you're going to play regardless. And so it's really easy to fall into habits that practices don't matter. But as you move up, you guys know, right? Practices are critical. And then you get, like you mentioned, Shane, to the pros, you know, just, just a perception by a, a veteran to see some guy that, you know, just, and it's so subtle, most people wouldn't see it, but the way he gave up on a battle or the way that, you know, he sort of turned away after the shot, subtle things. But when we're talking about, you know, at playing at the highest levels, those subtle things can really be glaring. And so it's easy to sort of see somebody that says, you know what, I, I know you want it. I know that you feel like you've earned it, but you're not quite there yet. And not just because you're not how you're playing, but because how you're practicing. We say it over and over. The way you practice is the way you'll play. And it's true. It is true. 
Um, so how you practice matters. And that's, it's, you know, when working with younger people, it's just getting to understand the idea of how you practice matters. But you know, with the older players, it's getting into the, you know, drive, d- drilling down into what does that mean? So, you, okay, Kevin, it says how I practice matters. But what does that mean? What does that mean? And so real quick before, because I know we're going to get into this in depth uh, next week, but before we go further, I just want to talk about sort of these five key areas what, what we have to see in a really strong, intentional, purposeful practice, right? And that is the idea of master coaching, right? Having somebody out there that understands the game and understands how it should be played and being able to give you feedback very close to the actual skill, right? Because that's, that's a very powerful way to develop uh, um, the right skills at the right time, uh, the right drills, right? Having players do the right things over and over and over. You can do the same thing over and over, but if it's wrong, man, you're getting really good at doing the wrong thing. Uh, so we got to have the right drills. Um, sorry guys. Um, zone time. When I talk about zone time, I'm talking about getting into, you know, getting out of your comfort zone and pushing, pushing on things that you're not great at, pushing at things you need to get better at. Uh, And that's a scary time because guess what happens when you get out of your comfort zone, you start screwing up, right? And when you start screwing up, what do you start hearing from the bench, right? The coach is screaming at you. So it's not a fun place to be, but unless you get out of your comfort zone, you're never going to get better. Uh, the fourth one is repetition, just like what Brad was saying earlier, is that you've got to do this stuff over and over and over and over again. And you've got to understand that whether you like doing it that way or not, whether you're more natural doing it that way or not, it still has to be done. And then the last thing is game-like conditions, right? If you're going out practicing because it's practice and you toned it down a little bit, then you're going to find yourself really running around in a game because you just, you're not there. But if you practice in game-like conditions and coaches are getting much, much better at doing this, then there's, you're more likely to sort of fall into that rhythm when it comes game time. Just to expand on that, Kevin, uh, when you're talking about the zones, um, is it one of those situations where you, you want them to fall into the zones at the right time? Like are there specific zones that need to be uh, acclimated to the athlete at the right, with the right conditions? Yes, exactly right. And, and this is super important because – you know, I've told guys, I want you pushing the comfort zone, pushing the comfort zone, and then they go out in a really important game and start doing crap that they're not very good at, right? Oh, coach, you said to do it and, you know, push myself. Well, no, 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 that you're, you're missing the point. When we're talking about getting outside of your comfort zone, we recognize, I, I have three zones that I talk about, comfort zone, learning zone, which is just outside of the comfort zone, and then the panic zone. That means you're way outside of your comfort zone and you're freaking out, right? Um, so I want people to practice in the learning zone. I don't want you to spend too much time in your comfort zone in practice because you're already good at that stuff. I want you pushing it because if you make a mistake in practice, big deal. Yeah, you might get yelled at, but you know, you're not going to lose the game. If you jump into a game and think I'm going to spend time doing things I don't really know how to do very good, then you're in for a rough game. In the game, I want you playing with speed and intensity. And the way you play with speed and intensity is you do things that you're really good at which is things in your comfort zone, right? It's things that I do almost automatically without having to think. So yeah, you, to, you nailed it, Brad. It's, it's really down to, I have to understand the zones, but when it comes to game time, I want to play a very simple, effective game, which means I'm probably staying close to my comfort zone so that I can be fast and intense and physical. But when it comes to practice, I don't want to spend much time in my comfort zone. I want to push the edges. I want to be out there doing things that, you know what, I'm probably going to screw up half the time or more, 
but that's okay because this is where I'm getting better. This is where I'm learning. So yeah, that's spot on. It's these different zones and knowing how to spend the right amount of time in the right place so that I'm getting the most out of both competition and my preparation. See, both your last two points, I think it is really important because sometimes I think there's a misinterpretation of like when the coaches say, I want you to play a simple game. And then the fans or other people, media around it will say, you mean a simplistic game? And it's not, they just misinterpreted what the meaning of that actually is. So, you know, I think in this conversation, we certainly have done that. But once again, we want to thank you very much uh, for your great insight, Dr. Willis. And we look forward to speaking to you next week as always. And uh, for our guest, Scott Luce, Director of Scouting for the Vegas Golden Knights, Mark Yate from Yates from Instat, uh, as well as Pat Malloy, player development uh, coach and doing a great profile. I'm Shane Malloy, along with Brad Allen. It's been another edition of Hockey Prospect Radio. And hopefully one day we will see you at the rink. Did you know you can open Upper Deck Hockey Packs any time of the day from anywhere in the world? Well, if you haven't checked out Upper Deck ePack yet, you're really missing out. Open NHL trading cards from your smartphone, tablet, or computer and conduct trades with other collectors all over the world. These are not just digital cards. You can actually store cards for free on Upper Deck ePack and have them shipped to you for a nominal fee. Check out the new wave of collecting at UpperDeckEPack.com. That's Upper Deck, the letter E, and Pack.com. Instat Hockey offers the largest data and video library of players, teams, and leagues worldwide. Trusted by leagues, teams, coaches, and scouts at every level of the game. There is no better choice than Instat to help in the areas of evaluation, development, and exposure for your brand. Their unmatched database saves coaches and scouts hours of time as individual player shifts and stats are pre-cut into separate playlists. Also, the option to edit, share, or download your own clips using Instat Instat's video editing tools. Visit instatsport.com slash hockey today for more information. Instat, the Institute of Statistics. What does every competitive hockey player, no matter their age or ability level, need from their coaches? They need knowledge that'll help them improve in specific areas, and they need to know how they're doing. PowerPlayer brings clarity to the development process and helps build stronger relationships and trust between coaches, players, and parents. A feedback platform built around performance evaluation system, PowerPlayer helps coaches provide individualized instruction, performance metrics, and ratings, and comments and video directly to players. Visit thepowerplayer.com today and get in the feedback game. Outside Edge has built a reputation for guiding hockey players toward their potential and provides on- and off-ice development programs for hockey players. Outside Edge Hockey Development operates all programs on the philosophy of quality over quantity. Our strength, skills, and mental coaches understand the demands of the game and use this knowledge to develop strength, speed, and energy systems so our athletes can reach their potential. The Outside Edge programming features KPI-based strength and conditioning programs, skating, and skill development sessions for pro, junior, midget, phantom, and peewee. Contact us today at outsideedge.ca.